Welcome back to another impactful night of the Impact of Education Leadership. This is episode 72. I'm your host, ID34, as a journalist. Tonight's panelists are Jen Belay, Buddy Thornton, and Rick Berlay. Jim Belay, please say hello. Please say hello to the people. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Jen Belay. I'm a school counselor and um, LPC, and it's good to be with you tonight. Awesome, awesome. And Buddy Thornton, please say hello to the people. Yes, uh, good evening, uh, panelist Isaiah and everyone uh, listening to the podcast. It is an honor to be here from sunny Phoenix, Arizona. That's right. And Rick Bolay, please say hello to the people. Good evening, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, all right. Well, tonight's topic, get ready for this. No, that's not the topic. The topic is the great school's awakening. The great school's awakening. After the American Revolution of 1775 through 1783, Georgia and South Carolina tried to start small public universities. Affluent families sent their sons to northern states for college. In Georgia, public county academies for white male students became more common. And after 1811, South Carolina opened a few free common schools to teach reading, writing, and arithmetic. Mostly, public schooling in rural areas did not extend beyond the elementary grades for either whites or blacks. This was known as eighth grade schooling. After 1900, some cities began to establish high schools, primarily for middle-class whites. In the 1930s, roughly one-fourth U.S. population still lived and worked on farms, and few rural southerners of either race went beyond the eighth grade. That's until after the end of World War II. Tonight, we will have a discussion about the great school awakening that we're in the middle of now. We're in the middle of this evolution, in the middle of this pivot in the education system, not only in America, but in the world. With that being said, our first panelist for tonight, for this powerful, I think, discussion, is gonna be Jim Belay. Jim Belay, please, Tell the listening audience a little bit about yourself and what you're doing currently. Um, currently, um, I am a school counselor and I also uh, just received my license as a licensed professional counselor. Um, so uh, I've worked both in the school setting and I've also worked in private practice uh, with individuals. Um, so that's pretty much where I'm at right now. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you for that. You know, tonight's discussion is going to be geared toward uh, the evolution of education um, during this digital age, during digital exploration. And, and this uh, discussion is going to deal with school reform. It is going to deal with uh, the progressive era. It's going to deal with influences uh, of college of public school education, of parochial schools, charter schools, choice schools, you, you name it, every gamut, <clears throat> every 
every facet of education in those educational environments. With that being said, what's your, your long list of experience, uh, what different, I would say, demographics of education. You, you taught um, in uh, Pennsylvania, you taught um, in the Midwest, you taught in um, Texas. So with that perspective, with, with that lens, with your lens, what are some demands that we need to put into practice, into place, rather, to ensure that all kids, educators, communities, and stakeholders are given fair, I would say, social mobility and, and opportunities that are evenly distributed across the board? That's my question. Well, you know, I, I think when you look at that, it's, it sounds complex and yet exceedingly simple at the same time. So let's start with, uh, with the idea of mobility. So when we think about social mobility, um, basically the ability to change or move from one status to another. Within the concept of social mobility, there are different ways to move. So typically, we think of three types of social mobility. Uh, the first is intergenerational mobility, the second is structural mobility, and the third is exchange mobility. Intergenerational mobility is basically each successive generation achieving more than the last. So for example, great-grandpa was a farmer, uh, dad owned a small store, he was a shopkeeper, and his son becomes the CEO for Kellogg's or, you know, something big. Um, when you look at structural uh, mobility, um, it's the shift in status due to the changing nature of a job or situation. So think changes in technology uh, where blue-collar workers who were building the cars move to white-collar workers where they're building the electronics in the cars, um, working more along the lines of computers and electronics. <clears throat> when you look at exchange mobility, uh, the balance of numbers in each class stay about the same, but people are moving around within the statuses. So, for example, a manager moves down to the production line to take a job as a trainer um, because he doesn't want to be a paper pusher in a job he didn't like. So, at the same time, the company promotes somebody from the production line to move up and take his position. Um, same numbers of people, but they're just moving up and down um, in uh, status, so to speak. And so when, when you look at those three primary concepts of social mobility, you have other types of mobility. You have horizontal mobility, vertical mobility, upward and downward mobility, and inter and intragenerational mobility. Um, which is basically with intragenerational mobility, a person changes positions throughout their life. So instead of you know going from great grandpa to great um, grandson, um, now you're talking about the same person being a store clerk to a manager to a CEO, as opposed um, to grandpa you know being a farmer and so on and so forth. And then of course with upward or downward mobility. Um, you know, you have uh, people moving up or down, you know, within their job, um, 
And I, I think one of the things we need to consider with upward and downward mobility, um, usually, you know, that can be a significant change. So if somebody moves up, it's usually, um, usually for the better. You know, somebody gets a promotion, um, they make more money, there's a change in their status, you know, um, they're, they're rising up the ladder, so to speak. So usually that's considered a, a good thing. But it, when you think about change, people often dislike change um, just on basic principles. So while some people might enjoy the status of the new job, they may still have to move their family across the country. Um, they may be in an area that maybe they don't like. And especially if somebody moves down the social ladder, um, especially if they're moving from having more to having less, uh, that can create significant stressors on them. Um, but in, in looking at those things, that kind of brings me back around to the main topic about um, the demands that we need to put in place that all kids um, educators in uh, communities and stakeholders are given fair social mobilities. Um, I think when we consider education as the great equalizer, the idea um, is to, with education was to improve access for all to a higher social status through having the same qualifications. But that doesn't consider that not all kids are starting from the same place. So the place where pa the parents are currently at is exactly where their children begin. So in considering this, the concept of a one-size-fits-all educational system denies several intrinsic facts in our society. Um, one is that humans have developmental levels and they reach them at different times. And two, you can't start at different levels and achieve the same outcomes at the same time without significant interventions. And sometimes, um, think human growth and development, uh, that's not even enough. And I, I think in our country, one of the things that, um, that they've tried to do, um, when you think of the start of No Child Left Behind, um, you know, that was a concept I remember when they initially rolled that out. and. My, my colleagues and I looked at each other and we said, no way, it's impossible. And, you know, the, the idea that in 10 years, every single kid all across this country is going to perfect this test within 10 years, is it's implausible. It's not going to happen. Um, and for any number of reasons, you know, um, on test day, somebody's dog will have died, you know, God forbid a parent dies, their house burns down, you know, some some other trauma, something's going to happen that they don't care about that test. And so, and that happens on a daily basis at every school across our country. Um, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find any school where you don't have at least one kid dealing with something. Um, and what our current, um, I'm, I'm trying to think of the right word, what the current pers perspective in education, in my opinion, is lacking um, is looking at people as humans. They set up a system where they want to train the kids like robots. And so now we have a situation where, you know, basically your kid starts pre-K and it's like, your child, too, can learn calculus. Well, maybe, but maybe not. I'm one of those people that my brain is more um, 
based in literature, art, music, um, more right-brained. I am not a math and science type of person. I truly don't believe that it's possible for me to learn calculus. Uh, I stopped at trigonometry and um, and I got my school counselor to change me out of that in high school because I, I saw the writing on the wall. I didn't get it. Um, and it, it just wasn't going to happen. And it wasn't where my interest was. I wasn't going into a field where I needed it. Um, and so at the time, you know, I was able to drop it. But what I see now in education, um, having gone into education, is that well-meaning politicians are trying to set up situations where Kids have equal access, but they're forcing the teachers really to a script where everybody receives the same thing. And so everybody's, well, I, everybody doesn't start pre-K. Some kids start pre-K. Some start kindergarten. And, um, and they're not all at the same place. And so when you're not starting at the same place from the get-go, you already have people at a disadvantage. So they currently have things in line, um, in place like RTI, uh, response to intervention, um, and they have tutoring and they have different groups where, you know, designed to keep testing the kids to look for, you know, where they're not um, as successful as their peers and then they, um, you know, they, they try to bring them up to, up to speed. But the problem with that is that um, they just simply may need another year until they're developmentally ready. And so what we get are kids in, you know, second and third and fourth and fifth grade who probably all they need is another year or two, but instead they're being pulled out into these smaller groups and they start to feel, you know, like they're a personal failure. When you add in the mental health component of, you know, um, society, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic and, you know, all the daily things going on, um, you have uh, stress and mental wellness is a factor um, into what kids are focusing on. Um, so I, I think in a nutshell, uh, I think we need to get back to letting kids uh, succeed at their own rate. Um, that's not, you know, that's not to say that they should, you know, be allowed to fail year after year. But I think it allows us to give them the time to reach their potential at their own pace um, without adding that stress and pressure to them that they're feeling like they're failing, and also increasing um, counselors social workers, LPCs in the schools and the community to equal the, the mental wellness path uh, before we just focus solely on education. You know, Mrs. Bollet, if the listeners heard what you said on the surface level, they would totally miss it. Before I even go into what you said, <clears throat> there's a quote well, there's an excerpt out of a book entitled The New Being by Paul Tillich, I think. But in chapter 9, he says, We may not grasp anything in the depth of our uncertainty, but that we are grasped by something ultimate which keeps us in its grasp 
and from which we may strive in vain to escape remains absolutely certain. If you were to listen to what you just said on the surface level, you would totally miss something very key that you said. I heard your heart. I know you want change. I know you want reform. I know you believe that every child should have the opportunity to succeed. But what I heard you say was change has a process. And if change has a process, then that means, that means that there are steps to changing. There are steps to mobility. There, there are steps to status. There are steps to finding the right direction. And you said, how do we find these steps? Through assessments, through emotional assessments, those EQs, those being um, aware of a, a student's mood before you can implement intervention, before you can talk about prevention. We must first know how that child feels. We must take out, like you said, the robotic uh, teaching mechanisms or apparatus that is being used seemingly so that we can distribute or output a large number of graduates. Let's be real. But when I heard you speak, I felt like I was in a science lab. <laughs> Why did I feel like I was in a science lab? Well, not because of the terms that you use, not because of how you took a question that was complex and you broke it down into small bite-sized pieces for anyone to consume. But as you were speaking, I could not help but think about what's going on in the world today. Today's date is what, March the 17th, 2021. Right now, NASA is, is doing, uh, is, is involving in space exploration, uh, some of which that has never been done before on record. And with, and with this um, space exploration, this is gonna be used in school curriculum. This is gonna be used as teaching uh, <laughs> concepts and precepts. I mean, there could be in the future, I'm just saying, there could be at some point a school on Mars. There could be a university on Mars. The way you took this question and you broke it down into bite-sized pieces definitely added value to this podcast. And I want to thank you so much, so much, Mrs. Jen Bollet, for adding value to this podcast. And I, I think that's a perfect segue. I think that's a perfect segue uh, to the next panelist. Uh, who by which is Buddy Thornton, the positive social change agent uh, pro. Uh, Buddy, please tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what you're doing currently. <laughs> Isaiah, I'm a, a graduate completion uh, student at Grand Canyon University, uh, finishing my doctoral dissertation. I have been uh, a parent coach and a certified mediator since 2012, so nine years now. 
I spend a lot of time working with disadvantaged people and families in crisis. And I believe that uh, a lot of the answers uh, that are geared toward the podcast tonight can come out of past research and the way it indicates how people look at other people or how they don't look at other people. So we'll leave it with that. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, right now we're, we're talking about and we're kind of concerned about as educators, we're concerned about our children and our children's children, right? As it relates to college preparation, as it relates to the growth of human capita, uh, as it relates to uh, what's going to be new um, in academia, what's going to be new for teachers, what's going to be new for administration on the other side of COVID-19. How is higher education going to be used now? What's going to be the bridge? How are we going to transition our kids from secondary education to higher education? And what kind of money are we still going to be using land grants or will it be something else? Even will, will the GI Bill uh, still fit into the equation, right? <clears throat> into this uh, society. The question I have for you is, and, and take your time in unpacking this, but the question I have for you is, what tools will the universal education system need to administer education, i.e. like STEM, for instance? How will they administer education to all students who want to be educated moving forward? Because we do know not all students want to go to college. But that's my question for you. Well, thanks for the prompt, Isaiah. And I wanted to uh, comment one on uh, one thing that Jen said about uh, the the intellect of the moment. It is true that if you're facing a test or you're facing something that's very stressful in the in an educational environment, and and anything on the external affects you, uh, you can't get that moment back. Uh, Back when my uh, wife was uh, pregnant and ready to give birth to my oldest daughter, who is now in her mid-40s, uh, she just happened to go into labor and give birth on the day of our rating exam in the Navy. So uh, I had to choose rating exam, first child being born. Obviously, I went to the hospital. And the Navy, in its infinite uh, wisdom, decided that that wasn't a good enough excuse to be allowed to take a makeup exam. So I had to wait six months for the next rating exam period to take a rating exam and get a promotion. And you couldn't have thrown a dart and hit that date from anywhere with any perspective, any possibility. So that is just pinpoint exactly what Jen was saying, you, you can't predict on a day-to-day -day basis how someone is going to perform or whether they're even going to be able to perform. But in answering your question, you have to take a historical perspective. Uh, you detailed some, some highlighted points from the beginning of our country, and what it brings to mind is the modern concept of the innovation cycle. You've got your innovators, you've got your early adopters, you've got your regular adopters, you've got your late adopters, and then you've got your never adopters. And you can look at every step of the way the education system has developed in America across the last 250 years, 
and you can see every one of those steps being repeated cyclically over and over and over again. And the problem is, uh, every time we do make an innovation, it only stra it only straddles the top 10 to 20 to 30 percent of people. And by the time the next innovation comes around. The early adopters and the innovators get to move forward, but the regular adopters, the late adopters, and the never adopters are left behind, and the chasm just keeps getting wider and wider and wider. So you have to look at some external research and try to figure out, okay, how do we fix the problem? Because obviously in 250 years, we haven't come up with a concrete answer. And you have to look for a, a group that fits a research cycle that allows you to pinpoint and say, wow, why didn't we see this? It's plain right in our face. In not just America, but in Australia, in Canada, and other places where an indigenous group has been marginalized and then based on some innovation or some social choice, those people are allowed to mainstream into the education cycle. In every situation, the first generation of indigenous people produce doctors, attorneys, politicians, leaders, CEOs, great people. The research shows us that ed intellect is thrust throughout humanity. It doesn't matter where you come from, who you are, what your characteristics are, what your birth situation is. Intellect is spread evenly across the human race. And so we have to look at that and understand why is the education system failing at the rate that it's failing? Obviously we have a lot of successes too, but there are so much failure we have to focus on how do we bridge that. The number one thing is exactly what Jen said. We need to stop cardboard cutting. We need to start putting people on their own cycle. There's nothing wrong with the system of bringing people forward within their peer group, but it puts pressure within the peer group. The people who are not getting it are being dragged along with the people who are getting it, and they are going along to get along. The simple solution is deep, deep assessment of individuals investing in the money, the time, and the educational resources to make sure that assessments are tied to capacity, competency, and the child's choice, the student's choice, not the choice of the parents, the, point, the, the choice of the student, not the choice of the teacher. Yes, you have to look at their competency, you have to look at their results, but if someone says, I really believe I, this is my focus, you have to give them the tools to either succeed or fail, and when they fail, you have to look at, did they fail or did I fail them? And those are the components that are hit or miss in our education system. There are certainly great teachers and great counselors and great administrators who are getting these things done, but it is not mandated. It is certainly not a universal factor across our entire education system. And part of the problem obviously stems from we believe that certain groups, especially those who are disadvantaged socioeconomically, are always going to be late adopters or never adopters and we're just leaving them behind and that's a disservice we have to address but it starts with individuation and making sure that people are focused on as being people 
Immanuel Kant, from far, far, far earlier than our history, uh, he wrote most of the work that he did philosophically in the period of aristocracy, fiefdoms, and very layered society. But he had two imperatives. One is that if you're going to make a choice, you should make it based on whether it can be universal or not. And his second categorical imperative was people are to be treated not as a means to an end, but as a means to themselves. Show me in today's society where that is tied together. If every choice you make needs to be universal, then we need to make a universal choice to treat all students, all children, as a means to themselves, not to a means to an end for society. We need to tie those together and tie them to every child and give them the chance to actually be themselves. And I think that is the starting point for solving the problems in our education system. I must say I totally agree with that. There are some things that you said that I want to hone in on, but absolutely love that response. You, know, you talked about finding the right people or, or finding the right uh, sample group, right, to do the research on the target sample or the, of the human subjects if we want to be scientific. Uh, you know, when, when you're talking, you know, Jen was talking, and I. I, I I feel like I was in a science lab, but when you were talking, I feel like I was on a, on a field, uh, a track field, uh, because uh, the way you spoke, I felt like, you know, in order to be uh, not just a winner, but just to participate, you're going to have to get up and move. You're going to have to run. You're going to have to actually compete uh, in this race toward education. And so with that in mind, uh, as a uh, educator, as a teacher, as an instructor, uh, if our if our kids don't get up and, and run the race, then you know we really cannot help. And so this is where that environment, uh, the upbringing environment, needs to you know aid teachers, aid administrators, uh, community li liaisons, you name it. We have to have the help of those guardians, of those parents, because without their help, we cannot go into the home and motivate uh, those children to come to school and do their work. Now, uh, there are laws that are set up, truancy court, but that is pertaining toward attendance. Just because uh, the student's attendance is marked doesn't mean that they're gonna learn or, or that they are fully engaged. I like the way uh, you pointed toward uh, learning at your own pace. I, I believe that the uh, asynchronous and synchronous learning platforms, okay, is going to be a vital tool moving forward <clears throat> because you can measure uh, differently now, and it, and you can measure in a way. Yes, it's still. Uh, time-consuming and it's still demanding but automation uh, allows you to do so much more uh, and dispense so much less energy than you physically going and, and doing all the things that automation uh, can do <clears throat> uh, but uh, again that that cycle um, that that you mentioned and and that Jan mentioned uh, th that cycle of repeating the same thing over and over again for the last 25 years. Yeah, I think it's funny, and I'm being 
sarcastic. I think it's funny that we can even bring now into the mix of education or the education system, the prison system. Uh, because a lot of times people will go to prison and they will receive more education in that institution, in a prison institution, than they will in the free world. I think that's ironic that, you know, that you went to prison to get educated. Now, I'm not, of course, I'm not kicking that. And, and of course, uh, whatever it takes to get to where you need to be. But we have got to set in mechanisms. We have got to set in place um, guards uh, or boundaries so that, you know, our, our kids don't have to get into that, that prison, the pipeline um, uh, uh, structure, infrastructure, and, and they can bypass that experience because we don't want our, our kids getting uh, to experience what goes on in the prison system. But I don't want to get too far to be the uh, path. Uh, I love what you said <laughs> about, you know, not leaving children behind. And that's going to take a lot of work uh, to do that. Um, but thank you so much for adding so much value as you always do to this podcast, sir. And uh, with that being said, our, our next guest is Rick Bollet. Mr. Bollet, please say hello uh, to the people my, and for the listening audience who hadn't figured it out yet. Uh, Jen is uh, Mr. Bollet's wife, his lovely wife. And so, Rick, please tell us a little bit about what you're doing currently. Well, besides loving my lovely wife, uh, I am uh, still teaching music uh, in the Clean Independent School District, and I am also the president of Clean Educators Association and of Region 10 of the Texas State Teachers Association, so I'm helping to represent about 36 to 3,700 educators across Central Texas. Wow. This is the perfect question for you, I think. <laughs> you know, I, I was talking about, of course, um, the, the negative effects of the prison system uh, but uh, also I think that's a form of segregation that's a form of integration as well right and so um, <clears throat> that is uh, inequality right and so that that, uh, that is a type of uh, oppression right uh, on different classes of people. We talked about social mobility. You know, when someone goes to prison, that right there is a, a firm attack against their social mobility because uh, you have to, in some cases, you'll never be able to get that off your record, right? <clears throat> and so when we're talking about reform, we're talking about policies. With your experience, I've seen you on news stations uh, news channels uh, in the public. I've seen you in community meetings, board meetings, union meetings, you name it. You have gotten your hands dirty. You have been vigilant. You have gone without sleep to support teacher unions. I've seen it. I, I, matter of fact, that's how we met. With your experience and through your lens, my question for you, Mr. Rigbolet, what measures do lawmakers and educators need to put in place to make sure that this 
great schools awakening has a positive, a positive transition for, for our children and their parents moving forward? That's my question for you. I would say that uh, before we f- talk about addressing the problem, we need to first establish what the issues and the concerns are. I think that what both Buddy and Jen said uh, were amazing uh, and and really good foundations for where uh, I would go. Uh, And I'm not just saying that because one of your other panelists was my wife. But what I would say, and I guess I would start in this way. In order for the educational system to work properly, it has to work synergistically. In that system, there are what I would consider to be four gears or cogs that make that system go. Obviously, you have your educators. You have your higher education educators. You have your lawmakers. And you have your taxpayers. All of these are the, the main components that allow our public education system to work. With that said, if the system is not working synergistically, it's not going to work properly. You can have the finest Swiss watch on the planet, but it's not going to run well if one of or more of its gears is damaged or worn or missing. And that's the situation essentially that we have. And I think part of the issue that we need to look at in terms of dealing with this is to understand what the goal is. And currently, for all appearances, intents, and purposes, the goal pretty much looks like we're trying to get all the kids to the same point by the time they graduate high school. And they turn legally into adults at the age of 18. The concern with that, as Jen and Buddy so aptly pointed out, is that not everybody gets there. And other, their definition of getting there is not the same as others. I think when it comes to the individuation that Buddy very correctly spoke about, we need to understand that the even distribution of resources does not mean equality. We need to reach for equity. And reaching for equity, if we are going to use that focus of everybody hitting that same point of education at the same time, if we're going to use that as our goal, as our focal point, then we need to understand that some folks are just going to need more resources than others. And we need to accept that. So the idea of even distribution of funds will not lead to even learning, will not lead to educational equity. So one of my authors, one of my favorite authors, is uh, named Glenn Stewart. And he had a statement that I'm going to paraphrase. And when we're considering how we go about this great awakening of schools, we cannot be deafened to the true intent and need of public education 
by our own fears. So let me take a moment and go through and talk about this a little bit. The method of learning, when we talk about going to Mars and, 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 and the future, we need to understand that our method of learning has shifted from being able to memorize facts to use them to developing more advanced abilities to find them, parse through them, and apply them. So for educators, we need to stop reinventing the wheel and stop teaching in the old manners that we have been. We need to work on that individu individuation, individuation, I'll have to figure out how Buddy wants to pronounce that, um, individuation, that's what he said. We need to make sure that when we're doing that, we're giving kids the tools to find the information and then know how to use it. Doing those things will allow our children to grow at their own pace and probably grow faster than if we tried to force feed it. And then we need to get to in the information to the higher education folks. And for those folks, I would say, we're not going to reach the stars if all we do is teach people how to fly with a propeller. We are teaching in the higher education institutions in many cases, not all, but there are too many cases where they are teaching to an older style of education and teaching them how to educate in the old way. Teaching them all of the fundamentals but not teaching them how to communicate them to people not teaching them about the interactions with people, not teaching them some of the, the hard facts, you know, that are not necessarily taught, like how to, you know, we used to joke when I went through a college about, you know, they never teach you how to run the copier. Um, you know, that applies to the classroom as well. There are things that, the things that are not taught in the classroom in terms of handling the classroom that should be taught. So, we need to make sure once those educators get that information on here's the best way to do this, then our higher education folks need to teach that new technique or new techniques and teach that new pedagogy to the new and the current educators to provide opportunities for them too. For our lawmakers, I would say this. Televisions today are now reaching, in some cases, up to 8,000 pixels. But our public education screening and accountability systems are still in a vacuum tube. We love our higher definition TVs. We love the sharpness of the picture, the clarity, the detail. But why don't we like higher definition education? And I say that because most of what we do is funneled into generally one high stakes accountability test. As Jen mentioned, you're going to get some kid, who, kid or kids that have bad days. And you can have a series of bad days in the stress of both teachers and students that are desperately trying to prepare for this because their funds, and in some cases their jobs, are tied to their performance on this one single test. That is not providing an accurate picture of these children, especially those who don't test well, especially those whose proclivities perhaps tend to things like, you know, metal shop or wood shop or something other than what you will find on a standardized high stakes test. So 
for lawmakers, the key, I think, is to find a way to make sure that the money that they are, are, are allocating isn't being misspent. But otherwise, they kind of need to get out of the way and not insert themselves so much into the realm of accountability that they end up interfering with the very product that they're claiming to improve. Which leaves me with the taxpayer. And to the taxpayers, I would say that it's kind of an oxymoron that so many of our highest endeavors, the biggest things that we do, including our military, are tasks and things, jobs that are performed by the lowest bidder. And the accountability trend that started around No Child Left Behind, and even before then, really, uh, has become dangerously close to becoming an embedded part of American educational psyche. And the taxpayers need to understand that, again, to provide equity, it's going to require resources. And they need to understand that the support, their support, both at home and in the community and in terms of their, you know, their taxes, is critical to public education. And they need to be willing to provide it and not get locked into the fear that their money is somehow being wasted. So if we can get over these fears and these concerns that each individual institution has and we can get to that goal of individuation and understanding you know the buddy said and understanding what Jen said in terms of you know individuals being able to reach their peak potential then we have the ability to really transform our educational system but it's going to take us stepping outside of our own comfort box and frankly living in the comfort of our own fears. We've become comfortable with our fears. We need to step out of that and allow the system to work together, to work synergistically in order for us to achieve, fully achieve that great awakening. For this time, in the world, for this time, for this moment in time, shall we say, I don't think that that question could have been answered any better. Tonight has been the beginning of a great awakening. The beginning of redefining this great society. Because if we don't redefine it, from what I'm hearing from each panelist, tonight if we don't begin to start redefining what we call a great society we're going to lose it Rick Bollet that was amazing that was an amazing response we're out of time I don't want to let this go but Isaiah let me uh, let me throw one thing out there because I think this ties up of this and it'll give uh, Jen and Rick both a chance to uh, build on this foundation. When you are dealing with a child and you are trying to get them to understand a concept and they look you in the eye and they speak from their heart and they say, but Dr. Buddy, 
I ain't never gonna need that. I ain't never gonna, I ain't never, I don't see any possibility I'm ever gonna need that. Instead of forcing a concept down their throat, what's wrong with just listening and absorbing and entering their heart and understanding what it is they see that we don't see? We're educated. Of course we're educated. But you know what? They're, they're living in their world. They have to build their own quality world. If they aren't convinced that what you're trying to teach them is for them, then you probably need to listen long enough to be able to tie your concepts into what they believe their quality world is. Because if you can't do that, you are never going to reach them. And this is coming from years and years and years of dealing with children who look at me and say, I just want someone to understand my perspective. And they don't use those words, but if you get right into their heart and you listen, that's what they're trying to tell you. So I would take away, or at least in terms of my story, uh, relay one from my own uh, higher education, my student teaching clinicals. And my first segment, because as a music teacher, you know, we're certified pre-K through 12. And you, I, I went into the first part, which was the elementary part, and I was dealing with a teacher who liked the way they were doing things. And, you know, it was continually, you know, you're not doing this quite right, you're not handling this quite right. And then finally, he looked at me and said, you know what, I just want to see how Rick teaches. All right. So I did. I let fly. I planned it out. I got everything I thought needed to be done. The kids seemed to have a great time. And I thought, man, I really nailed this. And that teacher proceeded to light me up on everything that I did. And I came to realize that it was not like that teacher said it should be. It's not how they thought it should be. Moved to the second part, and my second teacher didn't say much of anything. And I found myself looking at them. Okay, is this okay? Am I doing this right? Not quite sure. And finally, they looked at me and they said, if you're doing something wrong or you're doing something right, really right, either way or the other, I'll let you know. Otherwise, you need to figure this out yourself. Mind blown. And... It was amazing how much confidence that instilled in me to just go out, okay, I'm going to do this. And so much of what we are dealing with, like I said, deals with not living in our own fears and, and, and doing that. And that strikes me as, as a perfect example of that and making sure that we are dealing with that child, as, as Buddy mentioned. I guess uh, along the same lines, you know, but tying into what uh, Buddy said, it it kind of reminds me of uh, my own high school experience. And, um, you know, one of the things that I enjoyed doing um, was just that, you know, I was sort of a, an older mentor um, in our band program, I guess, uh, you know, to, to some of the younger people. Um, and, and just kind of being that person to, um, 
just kind of go to, you know, talk to. I just enjoyed helping people in, in that way. Um, at the time that I, I went through school, um, in order to graduate, you had to have four credits of English and history and three of math and science, whereas today you have to have four of each. Um, at the time I went through, it allowed me extra time to take things that suited my interests. Um, it allowed me to take uh, a class in piano. Um, I think my senior year, I had um, English and psychology and band and piano and jazz band and I took Spanish for fun and you know things of that nature and it allowed me extra time even you know with study halls which I don't even know if they allow study halls anymore um, to be able to do things like work on um, you know with the uh, school newspaper and talk to people and work with people and all of those experiences for me um, had a great effect on me feeling like I, I felt like I fit into the school and I, you know, I was a part of something and that was my goal for going to college was to become a music education teacher, which eventually um, moved into school counseling and counseling. Um, but had I not been able to have that experience, like if... You know, I've told my mom often, if, if I were going to school today, I don't know what interest I would have in college, and I don't know what I would want to do because um, it's just so streamlined and academic that everybody has to take the same thing that I don't know that you really get as much of a chance to, uh, kind of like Buddy said, you know, do what applies to you and um, what kind of what you feel tailors to yourself and, and developing yourself and um, so I, I think in this streamline approach to get everybody to the to the same finish line um, we're, we're losing the individual people and we need to let them develop themselves so um, that's so just kind of my personal story on that. Um, and a lot, a lot of times change is good, but I think sometimes going back to the old way of doing things is just as good. I, I think letting people be themselves is where we need to start. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, this was another impactful night of the Impact Education Leadership. This is episode 72. Good night. <laughs>